Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by an incredible guest. I've been trying to get her on here forever, and finally, she has made the decision to, to come on. Um, her name is Alejandra Para Orlandoni. I know I'm just terrible at pronunciation of names, but you guys are all in for luck because she goes by Mapo. This is her nickname. Um, and so we're super excited to have you on today. I want to tell everyone a little bit about uh, your background. Um, so she actually has, she's worked in a bunch of really great places, McKinsey, Meta, um, and currently she is the VP of Ethical Innovation and Privacy at the Global Portfolio Division of Takeda. Um, so excited to talk to you about that, what you're seeing in this space, because of course, as everyone knows today, um, this whole element of ethics and privacy is incredibly important with everything happening in AI today. So welcome to the show today. I apologize for butchering, you know pronunciations and everything else, but we're just, we're excited to have you on. No, no, I'm so happy to be here and you didn't butcher anything. You did great. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So kicking this thing off, what I would love to ask you a little bit about, like, tell us what got you into the space, what got you into what you're doing today. Uh, give us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, sure. Happy to share. Um, so you kind of alluded to it. I've had a pretty, we'll call it a non-linear career. Uh, very much driven by curiosity and learning, and somehow um, I've been very lucky that it kind of makes sense in the end. Um, so my original background's in control systems engineering, so building autonomous systems, worked a lot with data, um, and that was really useful for learning structured systems thinking and system design. Um, I was really lucky to get a scholarship to continue my engineering studies at MIT for grad school. Um, and that's where I really learned, you know, uh, you know, the depth uh, to which engineering can just really accomplish all sorts of really cool things. I was working with um, some of the brightest people I've ever met in my life. Um, but that came to an end and I uh, served in the Navy for uh, six years. So I showed up 25 years old to my first ship and they say, hey, here's your team of sailors. You're in charge. Ready, go. Um, needless to say, um, it was really difficult and I was really lucky to have fantastic mentors uh, and folks to kind of coach me along the way and help me learn a lot about organizational leadership. Um, and during that time, I also uh, learned about geopolitics um, and then the dynamics between uh, nations and society uh, in a way that I just had never, you don't really learn about that stuff in school uh, to, that, to that depth um, and just how connected everything is in the world, um, which was really interesting uh, and was kind of the catalyst that got me to go to law school. So I went to law school um, and, you know, was really curious about societal and justice systems, that connection, that intersection between policy, law and society. Um, and, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up kind of meandering my way into tech law um, and ended up at this in-house uh, role at Quantum Black, which was an AI startup that had been acquired by McKinsey at the time. Um, and it was really on the heels of when the GDPR, the, the EU uh, privacy law was coming into force and that ethical AI was becoming this mainstream discussion. Um, so I was really lucky and was kind of at the right place at the right time of history and got to deep dive into this world of responsible AI and um, ML ops and how all that stuff intersected. Um, and then I got to join Meta after that, uh, then still known as Facebook, on the privacy and data policy team, um, where I worked a lot on shaping product strategy, shaping legislation, doing a lot of user research to understand, again, that intersection between technology, society, law and policy. 
Um, and AI was really part of everything, as you can imagine. Um, and so most recently, I've had an opportunity to move into Takeda, um, a pretty unique position of building a new function for this 200 and almost 50, 250 year old company. Just imagine that it's the same age as, uh, you know, what our military is here in the US, <laughs> which is kind of mind blowing um, to build this new function. Um, and uh, it's really focused, as you said, on um, tech ethics and um, and compliance as well and, and privacy. And I've gotten to join this amazing team of people who are really sincerely committed to doing the right things and doing them right because we're making medicines that that really save and impact people's lives. Um, and so, um, yeah, right now focusing on developing capabilities and solutions that enable Takeda to build trustworthy tech. So interesting. Like, oh my gosh, what what a what a a diverse background. I mean, we're in the Navy or McKinsey or we went to law school, like we're all over the place here. But I think it's such an it's such a valuable background for the unique set of uh, difficulties and the unique set of challenges we find ourselves in today with AI and everything happening um, today. Something I'd love to, to, to talk to you a little bit about is, um, you know, you mentioned going to law school and, and engineering. How has your background in law and engineering specifically, do you think, kind of influenced your approach to ethical AI? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and like I said, a lot of it, uh, to your point, it's it's kind of been all over the place, but somehow these things ended up fitting together really nicely. Um, I think there are a few dimensions that are consistent across both engineering and law and just general um, the type of problem solving, I think, that's required to think through AI ethics problems that I think have been really useful. So. The first is um, what I call domain translation. So it's the fluency in moving from one domain to another, from the tech domain to the legal domain to you know other types of domains, and almost being able to translate back and forth um, to really try to understand the challenges uh, different um, folks might be facing and what problems they're trying to solve, and then try to make sure we're all speaking the same language because that's that's often a, a barrier to solving complex AI ethics issues. Um, another one I would say is systems thinking. Um, you know, I was systems engineer. I studied law, which is really a lot about justice systems and social systems. So you can tell that that's kind of what I gravitate toward. Um, but what's really useful about the systems thinking world, I think, is that it's really important to identify and state assumptions to kind of be aware of them. And that really helps to mitigate biases, to help uncover um, you know, challenges we might be facing that maybe we might overlook uh, in, in other cases. Um, it also helps to understand the link between things and then figuring out what, what to do about the link between things that's useful. And that kind of leads me to the last bit, which is problem framing. So I think a lot of AI ethics problems can be really, really big and seem almost um, untenable to, to, to deal with and to solve. Um, and sometimes you can go too narrow and you know maybe solve something that's so tiny and so narrow that you actually are kind of missing the point. Um, and so I think problem framing is a really helpful skill that comes up in both law and in engineering that helps you kind of modulate the size of the problem and the way that you're coming about it so that you solve it in a way that's um, feasible and um, and helpful. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's so fascinating, obviously you know, this kind of background you have really has played a lot into 
the way you think about what's going on right now. And so I think it gives you a really unique perspective that's very valuable. Um, something I'd love to ask you about. So, you know, you mentioned you were working at a startup. It was acquired by McKinsey, kind of in the AI space. I'm curious, um, as I understand it, you worked on some open source projects there um, that you helped launch at McKinsey. I'm wondering uh, if you can tell us a little bit about that and why you think it, you know, why this was significant. Yeah, I'm happy to share um, the team that built this. So, so the open source project was Kedro, and it was the um, inaugural open source project for McKinsey. So it was very exciting for a lot of different reasons. The team was fantastic. Um, and Kedro is basically an open source Python framework that helps, uh, helps you build complex data pipelines uh, to create production-ready machine learning code. So um, you spend less time on the tedious kind of plumbing, um, you enable some visualizations, you make it possible to create high quality uh, machine learning algorithms um, and, and products. So um, I thought this was significant for a, a couple of reasons um, and why I was super excited to be working on it. It was a really kind of early move on the importance of machine learning operations. Um, so obviously, you know, we talk a lot about generative AI today, but there's still a lot of uh, AI systems that are kind of, we'll call it traditional, I guess, if there's such a thing as traditional AI. Um, so this is a pretty early move on the importance of getting the operations of, of building those, building and launching and maintaining those kinds of models um, in a, in a um, we'll call it a, a healthy and sustainable way. Um, and it was also a really interesting um, move for McKinsey itself because um, it really uh, had the, the entire organization, so McKinsey is also kind of an older organization, really embrace the openness and kind of open source tech spirit um, across the company. And, you know, that's it's a big deal for a, a more traditional company to kind of move into that tech space and um, adjust its mindset overall and things like that. So. Um, the launch of Kedro was super exciting and, um, you know, I played a, a small role in it, but, um, you know, the, the product team was fantastic. So cool. Yeah. And as you said, like, I think, you know, the significance in that and a lot of listeners too, you know, working on different projects within their company, a lot of times, whether it's the first time McKinsey does something open source or the first time, um, you know, Salesforce is implementing some new AI into a certain thing. Like a lot of a lot of people listening and yourself, we're, we're doing things for the first time right now. This this big shifts that we're seeing in AI is these. A lot of things are happening for the first time, and it's incredibly exciting. Um, something that I'm like so curious to talk to you about. Of course, you went over after and and worked at Meta, and I believe you kind of led the data policy and and uh, innovation think tank. I'm wondering what are some of the most pressing issues that you tackled while you were there. Yeah, um, that was super fun. So um, just to back up a little bit, I was part of a team called um, the Data and Privacy Policy Team. And it was a bunch of people who were kind of big thinkers. I mean, these are folks who have helped to shape legislation across the world. Um, they're folks helping the product teams at uh, Meta to build products responsibly. And so I had a small team um, and we had um, a think tank that focused on a couple of areas, or I, I should say three areas. Um, the first was digital identity. So, you know, it sounds, uh, to some people, it sounds kind of like a boring thing, but turns out that figuring out when to verify someone's identity, how to do it, uh, what's appropriate, what's going too far in terms of um, asking for information and storing it in certain ways or analyzing or processing in certain ways, 
turns out to be pretty tricky. Um, so there's a lot of issues that we... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Kind of we're trying to balance around, um, you know, protecting someone's identity. Let's say someone is a victim of, um, you know, domestic abuse or, someone is LGBTQ from a nation that doesn't really sanction that, um, do we really want their identity to be, um, their identity information to be out there for just anyone to find and then potentially, you know, subject that person to harm or risk in some way? Um, so, you know, we're trying to balance what's, what's that right balance between making sure that people on the internet are who they say they are, but also keeping people safe. Um, and so that was one area that we worked on Another one, which was really fun, was privacy enhancing technologies. Um, you know, there's been so much development in privacy enhancing privacy enhancing technologies. I'll just call them pets. Um, you know, a lot of uh, you know advance in, for example, um, differential privacy and some advancements around homomorphic encryption and just all these different tools that get at privacy in different ways and make it possible. Uh, for us to get closer to truly privacy protective yet personalized uh, experiences. Um, so, you know, that's an area that's pretty hot in research and uh, it still has a ways to go. But I suspect that with that acceleration of AI, it's just going to continue to get a bit more and more and more attention until, you know, maybe we'll start to develop, um, you know, more standards across the board of what good looks like. Um, and pets can be a really big part of that in terms of um, getting a, a, a better baseline for privacy protection across the board. Um, and then the third area I worked on was the metaverse. Um, that was a lot of fun. So I was at Meta when we went from being Meta, sorry, from being Facebook to Meta. So the big, uh, the big rebrand. Um, and so I focused a bit on the metaverse and that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it was very early days. And so I focused a lot on um, a technique called scenario planning, where we were trying to understand and forecast what some of the key levers might be in shaping a future with the metaverse so that it could be responsible, so that we could do it in a way that was um, adding value to people's lives. Um, and so uh, that was a lot of fun because it was kind of big thinking, very futures driven, uh, very creative process. Um, so yeah, those are the areas I ended up focusing on. Really cross-functional work, uh, worked really closely with product leaders, um, with engineers, um, with design and user research. You can imagine user research was a huge part of all of this stuff. Um, and then also some outside consultants um, and um, in a lot of cases, academics um, and, you know, folks in the in the policymaking space so that we could all kind of work together to, um, I don't know, solve the puzzles, solve the puzzles yeah. of how to do all the things. <laughs> so, so fascinating. I mean, so many things, so many things you mentioned there, I think are interesting, you know, talking about uh, this whole issue of like, 
verifying someone's identity, but also being anonymous. This is, I think, an issue that's today playing out. There's a big debate. I think there's a presidential candidate that recommended everyone online should have like identity verification. And then there's pushback because there's so many reasons why that might not be a safe or good idea. And so, yeah, there's like this whole debate going on right about that. So I think that's like an interesting topic. Um, and then of course, you know, talking about uh, the metaverse and everything you, you, you know, you're kind of working on and seeing there. Um, tell me a little bit, like, I'm just so curious on that. Tell me a little bit about like, you, you know, you're sitting there thinking about how to make the metaverse useful and adding value to people's lives. What are some things that um, you think or predictions or things you you feel like you see in this space of the metaverse? Because I kind of feel like with the whole AI wave we're seeing right now, we had this whole like metaverse wave that just kind of got like lost or kind of disappeared. And it's like still there. And obviously, you know, Meta is investing billions of dollars into it. And it's still kind of a thing. And Apple's now coming in with the Apple Vision Pro. So like, we know that it's coming, but some people are saying the tech's not quite there. Give us some like predictions where you, I don't know, what, what's your opinion and where do you think this is this is going in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, you know, take every prediction I share with a grain of salt. I mean, just because I worked on this a couple of years ago does not mean I have any secret information. So <laughs> just want to hedge with that a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there are a couple of factors that are pretty interesting for the metaverse. Um well, three, I'll say three. Um, okay. The first is the, the hardware. You kind of mentioned this, you alluded to it a little bit. The tech isn't quite there yet. I think there's some work to do on the hardware. The easier the hardware gets to use, I think the lower the friction will be for people to give it a shot. Um, mm. So I think there's a, there are communities out there, especially those in the gaming world who are really used to using the hardware. And so I think that's why the metaverse has kind of taken off in that direction more quickly than in other domains. Um, but I do think there's something around the hardware where uh, the better and better it becomes and the lower and lower the friction is, um, I think we'll see more more uptake, I guess, on, on okay. metaverse use cases. Um, the second thing that I think is interesting is generative AI, which has now made development of content for the metaverse potentially a lot cheaper. So metaverse content isn't cheap to make. So you know, that's, yeah. that's a real uh, sticking point from a practical purpose on how much you can do um, in a space that can be quite expensive. So um, I think generative AI is unlocking a lot of that. Um, and I think it'll just continue and continue and continue to uh, facilitate more creators in this space, uh, which I think is a, a big, a big part of it. Um, and I guess the final thing is, um, you know, for any sort of new technology, finding that right use case, um, I think is is just the last piece of the puzzle. Um, there are a lot of potential great use cases for the metaverse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously gaming we talked about has taken off. I think education is starting to take off a bit more and, you know, subject to the the cost factor. Um, mm -hmm. I think that one could really be a really special and unique way to just, I don't know, step function, improve education across a lot of different parts of the world. Um, and, you know, there's an uptake a lot in the what people call the industrial metaverse. So setting up digital twins um, to help simulate different scenarios, um, test out different scenarios. Um, uh, in for systems that are really high risk, you can't just so, for example, um, you know, if we're trying to experiment 
uh, on a new approach to uh, therapy for a heart disease, you can't just, you know, casually go experiment on humans. And so one of the use cases for the metaverse is to create a digital twin of a, of a human heart system. And then you can experiment on the digital twin as opposed to the real system um, and start to get some early signal like, hey, this new experimental technique maybe has promise or maybe it doesn't. So it kind of lowers the risk of, of some of these um, use cases. So that's another use case that I think is starting to get some uptick, but you can imagine how expensive it is to create something like a digital twin. So it kind yeah. of goes back to that cost factor. So I think I think those kind of three dimensions are going to help either accelerate or create, continue to create blockers um, mm -hmm. for the metaverse kind of quote unquote taking off. And I think if I were to summarize or maybe add on like a, a, a cap to those three factors, I would say that I don't think the metaverse as one concept is going to magically take off. I think it's probably going to accelerate in certain areas more than others more quickly um, based on, you know, how those kind of three factors play out. Um, so again, this is kind of off the cuff. <laughs> no, it's <that's> good. <laughs> No, uh, I, I gave you no preparation for uh, your metaverse predictions, but I, I, I do really like them. And like, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I have, you know, my background's in software. So I've developed um, like VR tools before. I have like mm -hmm. a, an AI life coach called Selfpause and we developed like a, yeah. anyways, it was a lot of work. It was insane because we had to create these like, like worlds that you're in while you're meditating and listening to all these, you know, all this stuff. And it was, yeah, it was a lot of work. It's quite expensive. And to be a hundred percent honest, I still, my app is, we made this thing like two years ago. It is still not approved because meta keeps like every, it's like every six months they'll like get back to us and be like, Oh, you got to change this thing. So we change it. It's like a six month review no. process, kind of brutal, but, um, and I have a friend over there, so I, I harass him about it all the time. But in any case, I, I tend to agree. There's so many incredible use cases. I have another friend that's working in the healthcare space, um, doing VR for doctors, training them on a bunch of different stuff. And it's like phenomenal. Some of the solutions they've created there. Um, bringing you to kind of what you're working on today. I'm wondering, could you elaborate a little bit on some of the ethical AI frameworks that you're developing at um, Takata and, you know, how it's kind of tailored to the healthcare sector? Yeah, it's a great question. Um... So uh, as you probably heard in my bio, I'm fairly new to the pharma world. So for me, it's been um, a really interesting learning curve in how what I'm used to, kind of that kind of core tech uh, perspective, how it intersects with, um, with pharma and with health more generally. And so, um, you know, the company published a, a position on the use of AI a while back. Um, and has taken this uh, really cool framework approach where the goal is to create AI that's legal, robust, and ethical. And so um, I really like that but because it's not one-dimensional. It's not like just follow the laws or it's not like, oh, just do good or just build AI that works well, but it's, it's kind of like the 360 view of it. Um, and uh, what I really love about it too is that there's a unique intersection with bioethics. So it's not just like the AI ethics principles that you might, you know, you can kind of Google or search somehow, hey, what are some AI ethics principles? And, you know, you'll get all sorts of returns and they all kind of say the same thing. But um, 
you know, at Takeda, there's this intersection with bioethics that we think is really important um, because our work impacts people in a really fundamental way. I mean, it, it affects their health. Um, it affects people when they're at their most vulnerable. Um, and so one of the things I really love about how the company went about developing uh, the AI uh, ethics or the AI principles is that um, it worked with the Takeda Ethics Advisory Council. And it's this external council that, um, you know, it's made up of a bunch of different professionals that include external ethics experts and different um, folks uh, who are leader, thought leaders in this space. Um, and the, the advisory council performs um, analyses of different ethics topics and provides advice. And so they helped to kind of build out the uh, principles on our use of AI. Um, and, you know, uh, I alluded to the bioethics piece of it. Um, I don't know how, how familiar people are with bioethics, but um, biomedical ethics has uh, kind of four uh, traditional pillars. It's beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. So these are, you know, these are pretty well established in the medical field. And we had to figure out how this intersects with this whole new technology. Um, and so it was really useful, I think, to work with an external advisory council. And, um, you know, for anyone who's curious, the Takeda's position on the use of AI is published. So, you know, you can view it on the Takeda website. Um, and, you know, the, the other piece of this that I'll share, which I think is really useful and interesting, is that, you know, we didn't just talk to an external advisory council, draft up some principles, and then, oh, we're done. We know, we know everything. Like that's, that's really not how it works. The, the learning is very active and continuous. So we continue to engage um, in external uh, discussions with the broader kind of scientific, industry-wide, technology communities. Um, you know, we do some work with the International Pharmaceutical Federation of Manufacturers and Associations. So big, the IFPMA, so it's the big pharma, the international pharma trade. Um, and we work with um, uh, MIT and this MIT Takeda program that really is there to help fuel different development and applications of AI um, with the purpose of trying to benefit human health and, and drug development. So we really try to stay in that learning mode as an organization and try to figure out how we take those principles that we crafted with the help of TIAC, the, the advisory council, um, and then try to figure out how to apply them in our day-to-day -day work. And so a lot of the work that's continuing today is saying, okay, I think we have some foundations in place. How do we then Put them to action how do we operationalize them which is you know in the end a lot of what a lot of organizations are, are spending time on so um so yeah that's that's kind of what we're that's the way we're approaching it at takeda and it's um it's really exciting because it's a lot of learning um and it's really wonderful to be in this organization who's so committed to trying to figure out how do we how do we do it right like how do we how do we do this in real life and how do we make sure that we maintain you know i alluded to the age of takeda how do we maintain Takeda's 200 and some odd year legacy of being an ethical, trusted, values-driven organization? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I totally, I totally understand, like, I feel like the older the company is, the more important it is to really, like, they focus on maintaining reputation and legacy. I, I used to work at the Institute for Supply Management. It's like 
the oldest supply management institution. It's like over a hundred years old. And uh, yeah, it's very, very similar, but you get a lot of really interesting perspectives being in that space, you know, being at a company that's been around that long, um, you know, why they've been around that long, their, their dedication to excellence and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's really interesting. Um, that being said, uh, you know, people don't always get everything right when it comes to AI. And I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what are some common misconceptions about responsible AI that you've seen um, and, and how do you kind of address those? That's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. So um, I think a lot of the times responsible AI is mistaken for compliance with laws. Um, compliance with laws is a part of responsible AI, but it's not the whole thing. Um, and then on the other hand, I think a lot of people view responsible AI as something that maybe is going to slow down innovation, like, oh, we're going to have to stop and think about how we do all these things. And they're just, you know, you're just going to say no and slow down innovation. Um, you know, I, I think that this bo both framings, I think, create pretty unuseful uh, you know, I'll call them binaries where something is either good or bad, right or wrong. We're creating or mitigating risk. I mean, it's I, I feel like that's not a useful way to really go about responsible AI, because to me, um, responsible AI is more about finding uh, unique opportunities to create value for customers and or end users um, while also creating value collectively for communities or society. Um, and, and by the way, for your organization, you know, that that should not go without saying um, it's not easy to do. And, you know, we talked earlier about skills, uh, skill sets from past experiences. I think it requires really thoughtful problem framing and collaboration um, across different domains. Um, you know, I haven't read it yet, but there was a paper published recently on the value return, financial and otherwise, for AI ethics. And I'm, I'm really curious to read it because um, I think that, you know, responsible AI is something that if we do it right, is actually good across all dimensions. It's good for people. It's good for companies and organizations. It's good for society, so the collective of, of people. It's potentially good for the earth <laughs> and for our planet. Um, it's just it's just hard. It's a much much bigger set of challenges to address um, than you know maybe solving for just one little thing. Um, but I think it's doable. We have a lot of smart people in the world that that I think you know are totally capable of it. So I don't know. That's that's kind of how I see responsible AI. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are or, you know, if you have other explanations that of it that you you have found effective. No, I think I think you really hit the nail on the on the head there. Um, and yeah, I, one thing I that you said, like one thread that I just want to pull on that you said that I like is um, so often people think of responsible AI as like AI that follows the law or the regulation. And I do think that um, we're so new at this. There's so much happening that I think there is a need for a lot of like self-regulation in the industry right now. And for us to like, these, this is all brand new conversations and, you know, really discussing what is ethical, what should our AI do? Um, what shouldn't it do? What kind of values should it adhere to? Um, and I think it's kind of important for us to like, I don't know, internally as we're building these companies or working in companies, building these functionalities to, to think about that. Um, one thing that uh, a lot of people probably know me for is earlier this year, there was a specific AI model that I was testing out. 
And uh, in testing it, I found like it, it essentially didn't have, um, when you asked it, like what its priorities were, it didn't set humanity as like the number one priority. It, it set like other species or other things that like that, like, for example, it did some crazy things like say like a bee's life was the same value as like a human's life. And there's like all these like interesting things. And I mean, I, I'll, I won't go, I'll spare you the, the rabbit hole. I did a whole like reporting segment on it and stuff, but, uh, it really brought to my attention, like as we are building these um, AI models, and you see this as you're working in kind of the therapeutics and healthcare industry, but also I think healthcare is really important to, to keep these conversations top of mind. And also as people, also you have your background in the Navy. So also as like a Palantir and other companies are starting to roll out AI into military use cases. It's really important that these AI models we have, have a, have a priority for humanity, preserving human life, protecting human life, like you know, that's my spiel that I'll give everyone that asks, you know, me about it is like, that needs to be number one core, like hard coded into all of these AI models. But beyond that, I think there's a lot of conversations that we should have that, uh, as you mentioned, they're not necessarily all just what's the law or what's regulation, but like, what is would be a good thing to, to incorporate these. And I think we should do a lot of self regulation. Look, I know we have to wrap up. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. So many things as we um, finish up this uh, episode, I would love to end on on a on a uh, last question, which is, um, you know, based on your experience, this is it's very extensive. You've been working in this space for a long time and had a lot of really incredible experience. Where do you see the field of AI heading in the next, let's say, three to five years? Um, and what are some like predictions that you'll you'd make about it? Ah, oh, gosh, um, you're asking me to predict all sorts of future things. Um, <laughs> AI, uh, the metaverse. <laughs> let's see. I think um, I won't. I won't be like purely predictive um, because I do think there are a lot of things up for grabs right now. I think um, you know. Obviously, many of your listeners will know we had big news around the EU AI Act political agreement very recently. We're seeing guidance on generative AI from different jurisdictions like Canada and China. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing all these kind of rules and norms emerge. And so um, what I'm curious to see and what I, what I hope happens is that there's some sort of convergence around um, kind of like the, the, the norms, you know, the centrally the norms, like forget the rules and the details, but, but the norms. And I, I think we're getting close to that as as a as a global community, um, you know, there's some principles that people agree upon uh, around AI, um, but there's still a lot around, um, you know, is is open source okay? Is it good or bad? Um, is it good or bad to use AI for this or for that? I hope we start to really evolve and develop some agreement um, because. Um, as some of these rules and regulations take shape, what I'm hoping is that we have some sort of harmony across regulations so that innovation can continue to happen and it's not it's not too difficult to navigate. So we wanna block the bad things, but we also wanna incentivize and enable the good things. Um, so, you know, I this is what I hope around the, the, the rules and the norms and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and then I'll share this final thought, uh, again, not really a prediction, but a hope. Um, I hope we figure out how to make the most of AI. Um, Kevin Roos, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a pretty well-known um, New York Times reporter. He wrote a book uh, called Future Proof. 
And I just love how he put this. He said that humans in the age of AI need to learn how to be more human. And the way he described how to be more human is to be surprising, social, and scarce. And I just, I just love that, you know, be highly, humans are really good at being highly adaptive, operating in unknown environments with unknown rules or no rules. We know how to establish and foster deep relationships with each other. Um, you know, we can put together unique combinations of ideas and insights. Maybe AI can help with some of that, but some of those things are just essentially the things that make humans different from machines. And so I just love how he's challenging us to really becoming better humans as AI improves and, you know, has plays a role in this world. So I hope we figure out how to do that. Um, and I think that we're moving in a direction that could potentially go that way, hopefully. Um, but uh, I guess I guess time will tell. Yeah, I love that. And um, I think it's there's so much to, there's so much to be seen. There's so much that is about to happen. I think 2024 is going to be an absolutely crazy year as far as the stuff and the innovation that we're seeing. So it's going to be exciting to uh, to see how this un unfolds. Um, if people are interested in getting in contact with you and following along with you know some of the exciting things that you're working on, what's the best place for them to follow you? Um, I have a website called uh, callmemapo.com, C-A-L-L-M-E-M-A-P-O.com. Uh, link to my socials are on there. I'm also on LinkedIn. And um, my name is very long and difficult to spell, but I think you can find me by just searching callmemapo, C-A-L-L-M-E-M-A-P-O. Wonderful. Okay. That sounds great. And I'll make sure to leave a link to that in the show notes. So to the listener, thank you so much for tuning in to the AI chat podcast. And I hope, uh, you know, make sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day.